If you're new with us, we're going through a series called um, Got the Gospel Through the Bible. And we've been going through the, uh, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, and then all the narrative books, and we're to the Psalms. And the Psalms and a num- another few books with them are referred to as the wisdom literature in the Bible. It's the, the poetry and the wisdom and all that kind of stuff. And one of the things that's really interesting about the book of Psalms is that there's just this book of songs in the middle of the Bible, which is a, is a little odd. I mean, first of all, there's just a book of songs in the middle of the Bible. I mean, those of us who've been Christians for a while are like, oh yeah, the Psalms, what's, what's up? Okay, I'll just tell you, the first time I ever read the Bible, I was on a, a camping trip with my dad, with a bunch of Christian people, and the devotional was in the Psalms, and so I got the Gideon New Testament that my dad had brought on this trip, and I was looking for the Psalms, and I, so I was looking for a book that started with S. Why is that crazy, right? I mean, that's, I mean, I, if, at that stage, I was like, there's a book of, a, what? What's a, what, there's songs? I don't know if I even like to sing. But what, what's also interesting about it is, I need to start this timer or we're just, it's going to be bad. Um, sorry. Uh, one of the other things about it, though, is that uh, the, the Bible, Christians receive the Bible as the Word of God. Every book in the Bible has at least one author, little a, who's a human. Like, there's, there's a human author to every passage of the Bible, but we believe that behind it stands the divine author, big A, God, Revealing, right? And so it's one thing when we are told something, but the Psalms are kind of directed the other way, right? They're, Psalms are songs, humans are singing to God. In what way is that revelation from God to people? Do you see that? There's an interpretive issue that the Psalms brings up that are it's a, little, a little different, right? Now, one reason why it makes a lot of sense to attend to the Psalms if you're talking about the gospel through the Bible is that Jesus explicitly said that the Psalms are about him. Now, in, in the way J- Jewish people in those days talked about the Bible, when they said the law and the prophets, that included the Psalms. But there's one place where Jesus explicitly says the Psalms. In this one, in Luke 24. He said, he said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so that they could understand the Scriptures, and he told them, This is what, it, what is written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of this, right? He's saying, you're going to see it, but it was already written. And one of the places it was written was in the Psalms. Does that make sense? Now, the other reason is there's, certain, there's a few things we can learn from the Psalms that we don't necessarily learn immediately from everywhere else in the, in the Bible. The first is, if the book of Psalms is a book of songs that praise God rightly, one of the things that's going to happen is we're going to learn a lot about God. Right? But another thing we're going to learn is a good bit about ourselves. We're going to learn what it looks like to be totally human in every place emotionally a human being can possibly be, and then relating to God. So we're going to see some really authentic humanity, as though we haven't seen that already in the Bible, but we're going to see more of it. But one of the dynamics we're going to see that's really important is what happens when a human being is being truly, authentically human and rightly relating to the God that actually is. That is a dynamic that we need to learn a lot about. What does it look like to have a faith response to God? When you're in the worst place you can possibly be in or the best place you can possibly be in, the two places where we tend to walk away from God, how do you relate to God in a way that actually is right. 
It's beneficial. It's truthful. It's honorable. It's good. It, it is who we really are, but we're relating to God who God really is. And then the fourth thing, which I will—I'm going to actually publish in some blogs. It's not going to make it in sermons, is what the arts are for, right? I mean, this is a place—there are a few books in the Bible where God explicitly includes art and elevates the plates of art and artistry and how that functions in human experience. Why is poetry—why is poetry good? Why does God use poetry? There's a purpose to it. And um, it's worth learning about, but you'll have to read the blogs for that because I won't be able to talk about it here. Now, when it comes to the book of Psalms, um, the first psalm, both in the writings of the ancient um, Jewish commentators and in, um, in the modern commentators, one of the things that they say about Psalm 1 is, Psalm 1 isn't just the first psalm. In some ways, it's a summary of what the whole book of Psalms is about. If you understand Psalm 1, it can totally change your attitude as to what the whole book is for. Right? I mean, just think about the content. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or the ungodly, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers. Right? A very clear statement about who is not developing the person's character, right? The blessed person's character is not developed that way. He withdraws himself from that effect of community. Right? But then it says, but in distinction to that, his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on that law, he meditates day and night. Right? Really clear action. The result, he is like a tree planted by streams of water, bearing its fruit in season, its leaves never wither. Everything he does prospers. That's a pretty—that's a pretty serious statement right there, isn't it? Everything that he does prospers. Now, this is an important thing to, to say. How do, you, how do you interpret a wisdom book? Because is that a Bible promise? That if you walk in the—if you think about the Bible enough, everything you do will prosper? Is that what that is? It's not. It's wisdom literature. It talks about the way things work. This is the way things go. The way things go is, is that for this sort of person— there's flourishing. It's, see, th- that statement is related to the picture of the tree. Delighting in and meditating on who God really is tends to lead towards flourishing. Picture of the tree, statement, everything is prosperous. And then he says this, just to make sure that we can learn from the negative as well as the positive. Not so the wicked. They're like the chaff that the wind blows away. And then final destiny. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. Why? For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. I think now, in one sense, that's a great introduction to the book of Psalms, and it's a pretty straightforward message, right? It's not very confusing. Maybe hard to accept, maybe hard to live out, right? Not hard to understand. It's pretty clear the general idea of what's there. And so what I want to do this morning is talk a little bit about um, how this leads us into the whole book of Psalms. And I think there's some misconceptions I want to clear up. So here's, here's what I think, how this sets up the whole book of Psalms. And you could actually say this for the whole Bible. I'm going to argue that and, on point two anyway. But here's what 
comes straight out of someone. I mean, obviously you'll see I took this right from the language of someone. Blessedness is the result of delighting in and meditating on the law of the Lord. Blessedness is the result of delighting in and meditating on the law of the Lord. Now, there's three, um, there's three things I think that need to get cleared up. The first is, I think we tend to react emotionally to the word blessing in a negative way. I'm going to say why in just a second. Um, the second is, the phrase, law of the Lord, as something that we meditate on and delight in day in and day out, that does not sound very sexy. The phrase, the law of the Lord. And third, um, one of the things we need to think about is that we need to know why it's so important and what the functionality is of the delighting in and the meditating on. Why is that so critical? Why can I say with almost certainty that if you don't actually embrace the process and actions of delighting in and meditating on what this passage calls the law of the Lord, you will never have a, pre- a predictably strong Christian character ever. You'll be running around seeking self-help books and trying to get transformed every three months. Okay? So the first is, we need to clear up the confusion around blessedness. Blessedness in the Bible is simply true flourishing. That's what it is. It's true flourishing. There's nothing wrong with flourishing. Nobody looks at a tree that's grown up and has fruit on it and says, that's just selfish. The reason we tend to emotionally react that way is because there's a whole—there's always been, and in our day, there's a whole new generation of hucksters selling a conception of blessing that is incredibly destructive, spiritually false. The Bible calls it something God hates— And yet, it's sold as true Christianity to a swath of people. And so a lot of people, including those of us who are embarrassed by it, really struggle with it, right? There's this whole prosperity gospel, health, wealth thing. Well, you're going to be blessed, and you're going to get your blessing, and I'm going to tell you how to get your blessing, and let's get our blessing, and you're going to get blessed, and blessing, blessing. And what happens is they use that word so much that we think there's something wrong with the word or the concept itself. But listen, I just—listen, you can get—you just get a half-sharp— prosperity preacher, and you try to argue with that guy that that concept of blessing—that the concept of blessing itself isn't in the Bible, you're going to lose. You're going to lose that argument because the concept of blessing that God loves to be generous toward those who trust in and follow him is all through the Bible. It's everywhere. And this psalm begins with it. Blesses the man who trusts. And it ends with it. God watches over the way of the righteous. The problem is, our conception of blessing has to be the kind of the Bible is, because you see, one of the things that people hate about the health, wealth, prosperity thing is that it really is parasitic. In fact, at my last church, I counseled a lot of people coming out of one of those churches, and man, they were hurt. And the only guy getting rich was the pastor, and it was terrible. And I said, listen, you can't, I, my counsel was, you can't get rid of the idea that God is loving and blesses his people. You've got to get rid of that conception of blessing that is horrifyingly unbiblical. The picture of blessing is in the tree, right? It's that tree imagery. There is a tree planted by streams of water that bears fruit. Its leaves don't wither. Its roots have access to life. That's blessedness. That doesn't hurt anybody. What does it do? It bears fruit. Do you see how the picture of blessedness, the, the, the thing itself, 
is connected to a, a stream of life coming in, and it doesn't then, the, the tree doesn't reach out and grab things and tear them away for itself. What does it do? It produces fruit that other people eat. Everybody around that, that whom is blessed is blessed. And you see, that's the way God blesses. God's blessing is always creating this. God creates an abundance, and that abundance goes out and helps others, and blessing comes in and it goes out. So Jesus could say to his disciples, when he, he made them able to cast out demons and heal people, he said, listen, you, you freely received, therefore what? Freely give. You see, it's that mentality of generosity that is built into the conception of blessing in the Bible. You don't need to be afraid of it. And, and listen, you need to know this because we live in a city that not only has a bit of a strange personality, but it's really, it really loves Buddhist spirituality. And this is a huge difference between Christianity and Buddhism because the, the internal human desire to be blessed, to truly flourish, that my life would go well and produce something is not a desire you need to put away because it's going to hurt other people. It's a desire that you need to embrace, put under the gospel in God's full leadership, live it out fully, seek to be as blessed as possible so that you can be a blessing to as many as possible. It's a very different conception of how we bring about peace in human society. Therefore, if, you under, if we understand the concept of biblical blessing, it's just truth rightly embodied. We believe the truth— it affects who we believe we are. We embody it. And what it produces is a tree that does it wither and produces fruit. Does that make sense? But, it, it, but one of the things to recognize, too, is it's not just naturalistic. What I'm not saying is, listen, if you manage your life right, if you read the right self-help books, if you put in place the principles I'm talking about, right? Don't you love those sermons? The principle sermons? I've got seven principles of blah, 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 Right? Now, they're not all bad, but if you put these principles in place, here's what's going to happen. It's not naturalistic like that. It's not if you put in these inputs, you're going to get these outputs. It's this way. There is an actual God who is actually there, who actually loves truth, goodness, and beauty, and that when people actually trust him and actually walk with him, he intentionally watches over their way. He delights in blessing and providing for and protecting and vindicating and his people. Now you move on to Psalm 23, and what does it say? Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, even there you are with me. So the conception of prosperity, success, blessing, you need to read the whole psalm book before you understand what that all looks like completely, right? We gotta move. The second thing we need to clear up is what law the Lord refers to. And what law the Lord refers to is God's revealed character in ways, what God is actually like and who God actually is. That is the thing, the what we delight in and meditate on. Now, you might say, well, Nick, it says law of the Lord. You're just trying to make this cute, right? But not really. Um, the word in the actual text is the word Torah, which if, if, if you have any Jewish friends who go to like Torah study, Orthodox or Reformed Jewish, and they say Torah, they say that because law isn't, a, isn't that good a translation. And here's why. Because the word Torah, the way it's used in the, in the Hebrew Bible, what we call the Old Testament, doesn't translate into one word very well. 
So you've got to pick something and translate it. In this context, they use law of the Lord because it does two things. It takes in the idea of what God commands and his precepts, but it also refers to the whole of Scripture. The law of the Lord was an Old Testament way to refer to all of revealed Scripture. And so the picture the psalmist is trying to point is one who listens to what God says— And what he meditates on is a clear corpus. It's the scriptures. That's what they meditate on, right? But but Torah doesn't mean law. It means, well, it does mean law, but it means other things too. It means law, teaching, instruction, wisdom, decision, direction. The, The most holistic translation of it is wisdom. But see, that's too general for this context. So translators couldn't use that here. But that's the concept. The concept is it's the whole scope of the wisdom and ways of God, which includes his commands and his laws and his ways in history and his all of this. Does that make sense? It's the ways of God and the character of God that he meditates on and delights in. Once you realize that, then this phrase that he, this blessed person, delights in and meditates on the law of the Lord day and night— doesn't necessarily seem like studying a rule book. I mean, think—I mean, the mental picture of having, like, a, a book on international corporation law that day in and day out, the student delights in and meditates on just sounds, like, silly, right? I mean, that sounds really silly. But it's because—it's because—but that metaphor sounds really silly because of the, it's a law book he's hugging, right? You could imagine something else there— that, that wouldn't be silly, right? I mean, there's probably a movie that you've watched 30 times, right? Or some poem that you really like, or somebody you really like. I mean, it, what he's talking about is the study and meditating on delighting in of God. But there's a reason why he says love the Lord and not God. Because there's a few kinds of faith responses that this guy is, in the inspiration of the bigger guy— Intentionally trying to rule out. There are certain faith responses that biblically aren't, don't work. One is the nominal or the momentary faith, right? Like, I'm a, I'm a Christian, whatever. Yeah, don't tell me I'm not one. I'm one, right? And, but Christian in name only, or momentary. Like, yeah, I believe in Jesus in 1984, and, you know, I'm a Christian. The undevout and the devout version of that. But you see, what's the word that gets used the most in this passage? It's way, right? There's nothing, there's nothing punctuated about that. It's a way. It's a path. In fact, the word Christian, to refer to those of us who believe in and follow Jesus, we didn't make that word up. It's in the Bible twice. Once on the lips of a pagan ruler, and once what Christians got called pejoratively in a place called Antioch. There was a name for what we are that the apostles came up with that's in the book of Acts. You know what it is? The way. That was what Christianity was first called. Paul referred to it as the way. Why? Because, yeah, you come in at a certain moment, but you—that's the trailhead. And then you walk the way. Which, also what you need to recognize is that there is no way of conceptualizing biblical Christianity, the biblical God, in an amoral kind of way. You can't separate spirituality and morality. You shouldn't try, but you can't. It's very popular nowadays, isn't it? That's not a new thing. Greeks believed that. The Romans believed that. Almost every ancient society believed that. That fundamental human morality, what's good, right, true, and beautiful, and what the gods could do for you, or what spirituality could do for you, aren't, they don't even relate to each other. 
You'd be terrible to your wife? Go to the brothel? Then go sacrifice to Hermes so you can make a good speech. All makes sense, right? You see here, people who have faith and trust in God and are spiritual, who are, what's the label used for them? The righteous, right? That's an inherently and irreducibly moral title. And what about those who don't trust in God and do whatever they want? And they mock and scoff and whatever. They're referred to as not the people who aren't entirely persuaded about Jesus, are they? No, the, the concept, they're called the wicked. Does that mean that they're as bad as they can possibly be? No, it means they're not on the way. They're on a different way. And those ways are categorized in a, with absolutely and fundamentally moral categories, which means there is no way to look at the God of the Scriptures and to respond to Him in faith in a way that's amoral. God is fundamentally moral because God doesn't care to stop caring about what's right and good and true and beautiful and righteous. In fact, that's what creates the big problem of us relating to him. It's why there's a cross at all. That's why there was a Savior, to save us from the moral destruction of our sinful failures. The way of Christian salvation is first and foremost a moral pardon. Because God is a moral God. And you can't respond to him as though he's an amoral energy field. The other is the nonspecific spirituality. You see, he could have said, he could have said God, right? That this person, the righteous person, meditates, delights and meditates on God, right? But that's not what he said. He says the law of the Lord, Yahweh. That's very specific, you see. The whole idea would be like, you know, I think it's good to think about God. It's good to like meditate on the spirit, spiritual things, and God's spirit, and like being spiritual, and I like being spiritual. I just don't like being religious, and right? Okay, listen, I'm not saying that's a false spirituality in that it's irrational. I'm just saying it's not biblical, first and foremost. Okay, whether or not, whichever one is right, let's start with what's what. You can't reasonably read the Psalms or really all of the Bible, any of the Bible, and think that way about the God of Christianity. The God of Christianity is a speaking and showing God. He's a revealing God. He's not vague. He's not particularly distant. He is very clear. And when he says that the person who is like the tree planted by trees, this is somebody who delights in and meditates on the scriptures, the clear, objective, possessed, in front of us, accessible, understandable revelation of God about himself. It's very specific. And so when you start thinking about, well, what would it look like for me to respond to God in faith the way God deserves and what's, what's true and good and right? Well, these, these three don't work. Because the one who is blessed in this way delights and meditates on Torah. The Torah of Yahweh. You can't get more specific than that. More moral than that. Or more lifelong than that. Let me take just a couple minutes here and tell you why this is so important. It's important because if we don't learn what we know about God by meditating on who God has said he is, here's what's going to happen. We're going to have experiences and moments are going to happen in our lives where we're going to be jostled and we're going to think about God in a fairly emotional state. But it's going to feel like we're having a rational epiphany. 
And this is how most people think about God. Either something goes really well, or they think something goes really bad, and their emotions flare up, and they think through something again, and they think they're having this epiphany, rational moment, and they're like, oh, I see it. I know something. And they change their view of God on the basis of that thing. And the reason why that's a problem is that that is not when you're most rational. That's actually when your thinking is the most unreliable. And here's what's going to happen. When that happens, you're thrown into this thing like, what I thought I believed about God doesn't make sense based on my experience. So what you do is you got to make one of these make sense with the other one. And so what happens is, in that emotional state, you make God fit what you're experiencing. Because you can fundamentally understand that picture of God. And so, as time goes on, you have a picture of God that is more and more understandable to you. A picture of God that looks more and more like you. And meanwhile, your own character is being formed on the basis of what makes sense to you. So you're going to look a lot like you. And so you're going to look a lot like you. And as you take the dots of what you think about God, and you actually go through and you trace out what that God actually looks like, it turns out that it looks a lot like you. You see, that is why— Meditating on God and taking the result of that, delighting in and meditating on understanding who God is, and then applying that to what we don't understand about ourselves as the primary knowledge is so necessary because you are a terrible God for you. And I'm a terrible God for me. Not only because I'm going to make me a terribly shallow and idiotic person who's a trial on everybody around me, But I'm also, as God, going to leave myself alone and have no resources at the moment I need myself the most. But that's what happens when I delight in and meditate on me and my experiences and what seems like an epiphany when things are going bad for me. That's the picture of God I get. And one of the reasons why this is so important is because— God is very explicit in saying, I'm not like you. (laughs) It's kind of a theme in the Bible. One of the clearest examples is here in Isaiah 55, where he says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. So God is speaking to all people. He says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way. Meaning, let the wicked forsake the wicked guy's way and come to the Lord, right? And the evil man, his thoughts, let him turn to the Lord. Why? And he will have mercy on him and to our God, for he will freely pardon. Right? Do you see the parallelism? It's meant to give emphasis, right? And then God says— For, so this is directly related to what comes right before it, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, and neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. You see, a lot of people read that verse, a lot of people have memorized that verse, Isaiah 55, 8, one of the the verses I memorized when I was in our 20s, right? And people think, because God is so big, he's so much smarter than us, he's so ineffable, he's so beyond us philosophically, and our thoughts are going to be so small and human and, and, and so we, there's no way we can think the sorts of God th- thoughts God thinks. And so we're small, and he's big, and his thoughts aren't like our—that's not what this is saying at all. What this is saying is, 
you and I are so morally small-minded as vengeful, unforgiving people who are glad ourselves to receive pardon, but don't really think really wicked and evil people ought to be forgiven. That we're fundamentally against that hypocritically, but God isn't morally like us. God will say to terrible people who have hurt and victimized you, let that person forsake that way and let him turn to me because this is what's going to happen. I'll have mercy on him and I will freely pardon him. No penalty. And be honest, you're thinking that you're sitting there and you know darn well that that person ought to get something. God ought to be more mindful about who he's letting into his heaven. And God said, and God's response to that is absolutely not. You have no idea who I am morally. You are so small-minded. In Ezekiel 18, it's very, sim- very similar. He says, you accuse me of saying, you say, my ways aren't right and just. Isn't it your ways that aren't right and aren't just? And he says basically the same thing he said before that again. Read it. It's a wonderful chapter. I'll probably preach about it when we get to, ex- to Ezekiel because I think it's so important. You see, and what we need to recognize is when we let ourselves create a God in our own image, we always deceive ourselves. And when we deceive ourselves, we deform ourselves. You, you see, you see I, I don't normally quote Ralph Waldo Emerson, but I do like this quote by him, that every action's ancestor is a thought. Meaning, there is a continuum. Every, everything that anybody does, you might not be self-conscious of it, but before the thought was a type of person— character. And before that character was a type of way of thinking about all things. And whether you like it or not, there is a, there is some thought or lack of thought about who is over all things. And it flows straight through to everything that we do. And if our thought back here about who is over all things is false and made in our image, that is going to have direct and clear implications for how we build our character and absolutely de- direct, predictable, and imminent realities for how we will act. You cannot think wrongly about God and live rightly for him. Not predominantly. And that's why I said last week, in the Bible, idolatry and injustice always go together. Because idolatry in the heart, injustice in the hand. It's extremely predictable. Let's do the third one, real, third one real fast. Why is it so important to delight and meditate on God? Okay, if that's, if that's our side of seeking that blessedness, why is that so important? Because, see, there's a lot of people here who are just like, I know it's going to happen. At the end of this thing, Nick's going to tell us to get up and sing, and I don't like to sing, and, the, like, I don't like to do that kind of stuff, and— And so I'll say one caveat. One, it's good for you. Two, if you don't like real emotive expressiveness, there are analytical, introverted, I don't like to have any feelings, things you can do that that do similar things. For example, um, if you don't like expressing love for Jesus and raising your hands and waving flags, then you can memorize scripture. It has a very similar function, right? If you want to delight in the word of God, 
Look, at one, one thing you can do is you can be expressive about delighting the Word of God. That's wonderful. That does something in the formation of character. We're going to talk about that just a second. I need to finish these words, sorry. And in the second, but in the second case, if you, me, if you memorize Scripture so that you can hide it in your heart and you can go over it in your mind and, and understand it, that's, that's a very similar thing for a very different kind of person. And this person should memorize some Scripture and this person should sing the stinking songs on some level of expressiveness because it is fundamentally good for you. Both of them are even if you tend to be the opposite kind of person. So there's two, there's two of these essentially disciplines of seeking to form, because, let me go back, delighting in and meditating on truth forms character. You see, you can listen to the sermon, you can know it, and you can walk out, but there's something between knowledge, character, and action. There's something between knowledge and character, and it's discipline, it's formation. There are certain things that you and I have to do over and over and over again if we want what we think is true about reality to come out of our hands and mouth and energy. That's why we're supposed to love our, the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Does that make sense? And so, if, if, and here, here's why this is important. This is this good book by um, Philip Carey called um, Good News for Anxious Christians, where he says, you know what drives me nuts about evangelical Christians and charismatic evangelical Christians? It's like every eight weeks they go through another transformation process. Does that drive you crazy? It's like every fall, what do you know is going to happen? We're going to have some thing, right? And it's going to change your life. Every, every six weeks, it's another thing that's going to change your life. You ever get tired of that? Oh, good, another 12-week thing, another 10-week thing. Like, in some sense— you know, it's good to bite off some things, and but, but you know, some places there's a lot of hype around it. Like, man, these six weeks are going to change your life, right? You're not supposed to get transformed every 20 minutes. That's not how this works. You're supposed to grow up in Jesus. We're supposed to form character. We're supposed to be different a year from now, and three years from now, and 10 years from now. The man and woman Jesus wants you to be isn't probably three steps in front of you. But there are three steps that need to be taken so that in 10 years you're the man or woman you should be in 10 years. But if you think in terms of like little breakthroughs, you're just going to get in a cycle of rolling around in your own mud and you're not going to become anyone over time. And the reason people tend to do that is because they know discipline will be involved in character and who wants that? But listen, self-esteem has no relationship to the prediction of positive outcomes for people. It mostly is a predictor that other people around you are unhappy because you think so much of yourself. Self-control predicts almost every form of success known to human beings. The Bible knew that several thousand years ago. We're just kind of figuring that out now in the social sciences. It's nice to see that come together a little bit. People just won't turn loose of that self-esteem thing because it's so easy. Parenting is easy. Teaching is easy. Coaching is easy. Everything's easy. But it doesn't help. Discipline is required. Part of that is emotional. You have to emotionally delight in things. It's, it's fairly recent that people believed that they had p only passive control over their own happiness. For most of the history of humanity, if you said, somebody's not meeting my needs, somebody would have slapped you and laughed at you. You're responsible for your happiness. 
It, isn't it kind of interesting that in, in, the, in the present age, people tend to believe in the relativity of truth, but the objectivity and unmovability of personal happiness. Right? Like there's nothing you can do about the happiness state you're in, but truth is completely subjective. It's actually the opposite. You have enormous amount of control over your own happiness if you learn the disciplines of happiness. One of which is learning that you need to start delighting yourself in things that have objective worthwhileness. So you first ask the truth question of what is true, good, beautiful, righteous, honorable, good, blessed, Now, how do I then turn my heart morally towards them and delight in the things that are actually good rather than running after my stomach wherever it wants to skulk off to? And and when I see things inherent beauty and I see being part of it and I see things turning out and I see things going in a direction, the amount of joy that comes from taking delight in things that are good, true, beautiful, it, it, you become the kind of person that you can, you can digest that. It's wonderful. It's enormously empowering. It'll make you much happier, and your happiness is not held hostage by all the idiots around you. I mean, who who wants their happiness to be contingent on somebody? It's It's not a very good idea. Even nice people. I have a wonderful wife. Alexi is great. I do not want my happiness contingent on her, nor her me. We have to delight in, and the way delighting in gets momentum is meditating on. Because meditating on is basically understanding something deeper, teasing out its real nature, seeing it in a more full context. And when you begin to see God that way, it, you, I mean, there's just no end <laughs> to, to how deep, how broad, how wide, how intricate, how clear, how beautiful, how— there's just no end to that. And then you start meditating on that stuff— it, it'll really do something to how deep you're able to feel about these things, how strong an effect they have on your character, and how much they change what you actually do. But, but you have to do those two things. You have to do them. They are part of applying the gospel. You have to delight in things actively, like physically. You have to see something in your mind's eye that's true, good, and beautiful, and you have to emotionally pour yourself out on it, delight in it. That's called worship. Right? And you need to do it with your body. You sing, speak, write. That's why people do silly things when we sing the songs. Like, I mean, oh, I mean, why do we do all that stuff? Right? And it's, it, part of it is because what we do with our bodies, we do with our hearts, we do with our actions. It forms us. The more physically involved you can get, the more holistic the effect. That's why people do things. Why do we get together to do it? Because being with each other, there's a way in which morally, spiritually, personally, psychologically, we really do feed off of each other. We encourage each other just by being proximate, proximate to one another. Does that make sense? It's part of the process, and you've got to do it repetitively. Repetition is the key. Well, it's a key. It's not the key, obviously, for my 19-point sermon. Right? Now, in order to understand this, I think, as deeply as we should, we need to recognize that 
if blessedness is the result of delighting in and meditating on the law of the Lord. One of the things we need to see in the whole Old Testament we've covered up until this point is believing in God. Is that rare in the Bible up until this point for all of humanity? It's not, right? Human beings find the idea that there is a God very credible, naturally. People say, you know, atheism is on the rise. Atheism is on the rise. It's such a tiny percentage. How can it do anything but grow, right? But most human beings believe in a God. What people don't do if the Old Testament is any pointing to human nature is what? They don't—they believe in God, but they don't trust the Lord, right? They believe in God, but they do not trust the Lord. And there could not be more difference between those two. There's a fundamental difference between putting your faith in something, like saying, I believe in that, and being in a state of faith. Putting your faith in something says, I believe that. Trust is actually being in the way of that thing that you've put your trust in. Right? I need to get a relatively non-fragile human volunteer. Preferably a guy less than 50. Yeah, any of you college guys up for it? No? No? All right, yeah, come on. Come on, yeah, yeah. We would make Brandon do it, but he doesn't want to. Where's my pad thing? Oh, there it is. Okay, what's your name? Andy. This is Andy. Is this your first time here? No. Okay, good. <laughs> so this is a pad in case you fall and hurt yourself. Okay. All right. So, okay, we're gonna, for, for years I was in um, Christian camping ministry. We did all the, like, ropes course trust fall, all that kind of junk. And um, one of the things is um, the pyramid spread, where the two people put their hands, they clasp fingers like this, and they walk their feet out as far as they can to see how far out they can go. You up for that? Okay. Andy, right? Yeah. Okay. So c- come here, and then we'll go like this, and we're just going to go out as far as we can. Now, if you do this really well, it actually doesn't help my sermon. So if nature, like, just makes you <laughs> freak out, that's great. Okay? Ready? Go. That's pretty good, dude. <laughs> All right. Great job. Ruined my sermon. Okay, so— That's good. Thanks, Andy. Yeah, give me a hand. Now, if you imagine yourself doing that, what do you think is what your body says, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this? Right? Here's what it is. Sticking your butt up. Right? Physics-wise— it's pretty, pretty easy to figure out. Both of our bodies should be as straight as we can possibly get them. And then we move out. Were they? No. They were like this, right? Which means this is a very helpful spiritual exercise. This is a question you can ask yourself to see about where you are in terms of your spiritual growth. Memorize this so we can ask each other, okay? It's this. Is your spiritual butt sticking out? <laughs> That's funny, baby. (laughs) Is your spiritual butt sticking out? You see, because trust is putting your full weight into something so that if it gives way, you fall. And if you stick your butt up, what are you trying to do? You're holding your own center of gravity. That's the whole thing, right? Your body wants to hold its own center of gravity. But you can't win that way. You can't actually lean to that person and get where you need to go. 
And you see, the way of trusting God is like that. You see, many people think you come to Jesus and then you grow in righteousness or you grow in love or you grow in whatever. That's not a helpful way to look at it. Where does that love come from? Where does that righteousness come from? From you? Well, that's probably going to be self-righteousness, right? Where does the love come from? Are you particularly inherently loving in the way Jesus is? Maybe you're nice. But you see, all those things come from faith. And so the question is, if you want to grow, if you want to become the sort of person you're meant to be, if you want to have faith's response, if you want to relate to God the way God should be related to you while you're being fully human, here's what we need. We need faith. Our spiritual butts can't be sticking out. We've got to put our full weight in God. We've got to trust Him. There's only one way that the character of faith can be so seasoned over time that you can really put your full weight in God so that it would produce blessedness, so that it would produce love, so that it would produce what could be called by God righteousness, even over people who are still sinners. Blessedness is the result of delighting in and meditating on the law of the Lord. We should want blessedness. We should want fruitfulness in our lives. That's good. That's actually the object. We're after that. The glory of God and his gift of blessedness to us so that we can live for the good of all people. And if if we don't meditate on the law of the Lord, if we meditate instead on on the reactions of our own experiences, we're going to get a picture of God that looks like us. And it's going to be a terrible God. And if we will take the disciplines of delighting in God and meditating on him, as he has revealed himself in the scriptures, and we will do that repetitively, knowing that it's necessary to build the character of faith that is, that is necessary for all of the outcomes we desire for ourselves, for the glory of God, and the good of others, then we are going to have to build discipline that creates character. That kind of character. It's a German Shepherd police training program. Right? How do you know a German shepherd is disciplined? When you can say sit and stay and put a kitty in front of them and not one of them moves. That's possible. That's what it looks like. But it can only come when we take these steps towards what really builds the kind of character of faith we really want and what God wants for us. We have to delight in and meditate on it. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to do that now, right? So when you, especially these next 10 or 11 weeks, when you come to church, focus on it for 10 or 11 weeks. Start to try to build a habit. Do a little more than you've done. I don't know what that is for you. At, I mean, if you don't sing, sing. Like we try to play the music loud so people can't hear you. We know you have a bad voice. It's fine. God, it's joyful noise, remember? as the Bible says. Joyful noise, Right? I mean, we try to turn it up. Sometimes we turn it up high enough so you can't even hear yourself. It's, it's us loving you, right? <laughs> but if you don't delight yourself in what is most delightful, you can't grow in faith. And if we believe the scriptures at all, there is nothing more delightful than God. God himself is the center of all things worth our declaration of worth. And then as you delight in, follow that up by meditating on, thinking about, teasing out, thinking through, not justifying yourself, but seeing what God says about himself and then seeing how that is true 
And for many of us, it will require small groups for you to get started because you have no idea how to do that. You don't know enough about God, don't know enough about the Bible, you don't even know how to start doing that. You go to a small group. Find somebody who's further along than you and ask them to meet with you one-on-one. Go to a class after church, or in this case, come early and go, one to, go to one before. Because if you do that, it will lead you to the way of blessedness. Not the blessedness that cheats others, but the blessedness of flourishing, of leaves that don't wither, and that produces enough fruit to bless the nations. So worship you, why don't you come and let me pray. Father, as we take, um, take some time now to worship, to love you, to honor you, to delight in you, to meditate on who you are. God, please help us to do it with passion, to do it with discipline, to do it with whatever it takes right now to get us going in that right direction. We pray that you would pour out your Holy Spirit on us to make us able to point our hearts in the right direction, to strengthen us up, to lift us up. Help us to feed off of one one another. Help us to walk with one another. Show us what it means to walk in the way of the righteous. And we trust that this can only be accomplished if you watch over us, if you empower us, if you strengthen us, if you direct us. But help us with humility, but with laser focus and discipline to just seek to delight in and meditate on you so that you'd be glorified, we would be blessed, and that all people would be blessed through us and by you. We pray in Jesus' name.